Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. What is up, everyone? It is CW, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show, joined as I am twice a month by Tanya Mack, Women's Telehealth. Good afternoon. Nice to have you here. We've got a great guest lined up today. We do. I think he's going to be very interesting and maybe a little controversial, which always bodes for an interesting discussion. Yes, a juicy conversation. Very good. Well, let's get into it. Our topic today is advances in obstetrics and gynecology. And I'm thrilled to have one of our longtime friends of the show here, Dr. Hugo Rebo. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a board-certified OBGYN of many, many years in the uh, greater Atlanta area. He's an undergrad from Dartmouth. That tells you how smart he is to begin with. Got his medical degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine. Got his residency in OBGYN at Emory and stayed local and was named one of the best laparoscopy surgeons in the United States. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. He has a premier OBGYN practice in the Cartersville area, and he is the founder of the Georgia Advanced Surgery Center for Women. So welcome, Dr. Rebo. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the field of women's health. It changes. You're going to clue us in. We There's so many changes, we can't focus on everything. But today we are going to focus on three specific areas in which your practice has kind of been uh, a leader in the state, not just in your area. Your practice is Cartersville OBGYN. And we're going to be talking a little bit about um, changes and advances in laparoscopic surgery your maternal-fetal medicine telemedicine program, and we're going to end with the Zika virus, which is in the news almost every day. So um, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your practice. Thanks for having me again. Our practice has actually been in existence uh, since 1984, so we're, what, 30? We won't out to whatever. Yeah. It's a, it's a long time. Experience. Yes, a long time. lots of experience. And um I've been in Cartersville since 1990. We have a wonderful group of three physicians and two certified nurse midwives. Mm -hmm. And we provide full uh, OBGYN services from all everything related to pregnancy care, including uh, cutting edge telemedicine, bringing, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, highly specialized subspecialty doctors into our office through telemedicine to the very latest in minimally invasive surgery with our own ambulatory surgery center. Right. So you have a pretty big group and you're covering midwifery, OBGYN, and now high-risk OB and a specialized surgery center. So kind of one-stop shopping up there. Pretty much. Yeah, that's great. Uh, On the forefront of things. We don't even have that here in Metro Atlanta in many practices. So you're on the forefront of things. So I'd like to start the discussion talking about your surgery center. Um, You were the founder and you manage the only... Laparoscopy Association Accredited Surgery Center dedicated to women in the state of Georgia. Is that right? Well, let me uh, clarify. We are one of only four OBGYN-only ambulatory surgery centers in the state of Georgia, but we are the only one, as far as my latest uh, research and knowledge is concerned, that does routinely performs major uh, procedures in a totally outpatient setting. And I'm talking about when I say major, I mean 
hysterectomies and complex uh, endometriosis surgeries and things like that. And we founded that in 2010. So what stimulated you? That is a big undertaking to get the accreditation for a surgery center. So you have a hospital close by. What was your thought on having your own surgery center? Well, we started doing, um, we developed a special protocol. Uh, It's a multi-layered protocol, so to speak, to address all the different things that in the past had prevented patients from being able to safely and comfortably go home after a major procedure. And we started developing these uh, protocols at the end of 2005, early 2006. And once we refined these these, uh, surgical care protocols and saw how well they worked, first we collected an initial series of proof of concept, so to speak, Mm -hmm. over about Two little over two years of about 240 cases, mm-hmm. and I presented that at our annual surgical meeting in uh, Las Vegas, the American Association of GYN Laparoscopists, and it was well-received. And once we proved that it was safe and the patients did well, then we had the opportunity to acquire a, a suite in our own office building mm-hmm. right on the campus of the hospital and uh, develop a surgery center. So you're all kind of integrated in the same physical space, separated, um, but all in the same building. Right. Our practice is literally 60 feet down the hall from our surgery center. Okay, very good. And let's talk a little bit about what kind of patients are appropriate for that. You already alluded to kind of minor and major surgeries, but what are some of the diagnostic cases that you take there and that you do most commonly and maybe some surprising cases that you think pay- people may not do outpatient, but actually you see they're doing well. Oh, yeah. The, the, well, first of all, every single gynecologic procedure outside of complex advanced oncology cases, we can and have done in our surgery center. We've gotten to the point where between my two partners and myself, the only real limitation outside of the diagnosis, like something more resource intensive like cancer care is really the medical status of the patient. Unless they have a bunch of frail medical issues that require overnight monitoring, like history of cardiac disease or poorly controlled medical illnesses uh, of certain types or very advanced age, we pretty much can do virtually every case that would ever come across a typical benign OBGYN practice in their surgery center. And, And we've got tons of data to, to show that it's safe and effective. Mm-hmm. So we're bantering around laparoscopy, but there are listeners that have no idea what the difference that is versus an open case. So why don't you kind of just back up a little bit and talk about laparoscopy? Right. That That is a, a, an incredibly important distinction. Laparoscopy was conceived probably a few decades ago uh, to enable doing operations that previously required what doctors call a laparotomy, which is fancy medical word for making a big, huge cut in your abdomen, Mm -hmm. both vertically or or transversely. Mm -hmm. And we have progressed to the point where there are special instruments that you can use through these little tiny keyhole incisions, the way most people understand, for example, that gallbladders are done. Mm -hmm. Those kind of instruments were actually developed most of those instruments that are even used in general surgery were developed by gynecologists, including certain GYN doctors in Germany. And to enable these as far back as the 70s and 80s, but really not very widely used or known. And the, what really took off was in the early 90s, 
when I was starting in practice, they developed cameras that you could attach onto the laparoscope. Instead of putting your eyeball up to the scope as if you're peering through a telescope, mm-hmm. like on a ship, mm-hmm. <laughs> you and, and where nobody else in the operating room could see what was going on inside the abdomen, now this opened it up to where lots of people could see you put the camera on the scope mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you could stand up straight. You, you weren't hunched over looking mm-hmm. at the scope and everybody in the room, the assistants, the nurse, circulating nurses, the anesthesiologist, everybody could see what's going on in the abdomen. That was a revolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. And then they came out with various instrumentation that allowed you to control big vascular pedicles, big arteries mm-hmm. so that you didn't have any risk of sudden bleeding where mm-hmm. you had to you know, control that. Mm-hmm. So once you were able to, secure big blood vessels safely through these little tiny instruments and you have a big color tv screen that everybody can see on top of an instrument tower that enabled people to start doing bigger and bigger procedures and we did ever since the early 90s so is that part of your training in residency you said it was new when you came out or do you have to be specially certified well there is <laughs> that's a that's another uh subject that we could go on and on but the long and the short of it is all OBGYN doctors go through a four-year residency training program, but there it varies fairly dramatically how much minimally invasive surgical training they get in terms of number of cases that they get to do during residency. It is now widely recognized that most OBGYN residents, when they graduate, are not really ready to do very advanced procedures mm-hmm. in the laparoscopic realm. And that's given rise to a lot of different, what they call fellowship programs, where mm-hmm. people, instead of going into just regular OBGYN private practice, they say, I want to focus on GYN surgery and specifically minimally invasive surgery. And they do these fellowships. It could be a year or two years or occasionally three years. And they just get hooked up with a mentor or a guru that that's all they do. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way that a lot of people are really getting the skills. Mm-hmm. Unless you're lucky in your private practice and you, you join a group that has people who are interested and heavily into that, and then they mentor you, mm-hmm. and then you can get up to speed. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about laparoscopy and the distinction between major and minor surgeries and kind of some diagnosis like hysterectomies, endometriosis, fibroids um, that are appropriate. Tell, tell us a little bit about the risks and the benefits, like patients under, certainly without patient, they're up and moving, the difference between in hospital and what is done. I know when we were in prep for the show, you made a comment to me about, boy, it's just unbelievable to see them have surgery and a few hours later, they're walking out to their car where it used to be people were in a hospital bed for a little while. Oh, absolutely. There are several things that we've borrowed from other specialties, and I'm talking about even borrowed from dentistry and orthopedics and anesthesia that have enabled us to preemptively address all the things that tended to keep patients in a hospital. Pain, nausea, those are the two main things. And there are ways of placing uh, very targeted nerve blocks just like the dentist does. Mm-hmm. He deadens your entire jaw and mm-hmm. he can do whatever he wants. And it, the, the sensation returns so gradually that it's very controllable as mm-hmm. an outpatient with just regular medicine. Same thing you can actually do in gynecology. And there are m- multiple different ways to address nausea before it happens. So once you control nausea and pain, then uh, the world has opened up for you that as long as you're a meticulous, careful surgeon that has very high security of all the kind of things inside the abdomen that could cause a problem later, like 
big blood vessels coming loose, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If you're very meticulous about that and your patients don't really ever experience those kind of things, then getting them out of the hospital is key. You know, hospitals, as everybody knows, are floating with all kinds of lovely bacteria, Mm -hmm. resistant and otherwise. Less time in, the better. (laughs) Less time in the hospital, the better. Less time laying flat anywhere is better because blood flow is sluggish through the lower extremities. And the sooner you get up and moving around, you have less risk of blood clots and pulmonary embolization. And people just do better. Bowel function returns faster when you get up and moving. All our patients, by avoiding a big incision, they're literally up and moving. It is not unusual at all for our folks who've had even a major procedure like a hysterectomy to literally decline the wheelchair that our recovery room nurses uh, offer them and walk to their car with mm-hmm. their family member. Uh, that, I mean, we, this is not a gimmick. We've seen that many times and that's how these patients do. And what do you do with pain control post-op with them walking to their car? Are they on oral meds yeah, when they, they all, leave? They all go home on with just regular oral medication uh-huh. that people get for m- any typical surgery, uh-huh. uh, lower tab, Percocet, things like that. Uh-huh. But our patients, we track how long they use those kind of medicines. And most patients use them for less than half a week. And many patients have absolutely sworn up and down that they didn't even take two or three pills the first few days, mainly because their husbands forced them to at night so that they'd sleep comfortably. But they're on uh, anti-inflammatories, Motrin, Advil, Aleve. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Okay, so certainly, and uh, one more question before we go on. The anesthesia, you have anesthesiologists there, so it'd be the same as in the hospital. Absolutely. So patients are really having the same experience as they would in the hospital, same doctors available and uh, same kind of surgical suites. Everything is the same. Everything, the equipment is as good or better than mm-hmm. uh, as the hospital. The other advantage that a lot of patients like, and we've polled all our patients and many of our patients who we've treated in the surgery center have had surgical experiences in a regular hospital setting as well as us. And hands down, they prefer the outpatient surgery center. And I guess we have some unfair advantages. The entire place is dedicated just to gynecology. Mm -hmm. You're not in there with 20 other patients having colonoscopies and hip surgeries and gallbladders and Mm -hmm. all these other things that the nurses are all focused on you. They all know gynecology inside and out. And it's specialized care. Exactly. Yeah. Highly specialized care. Um, Well, we're going to get into, I promised a little bit of controversy. I do want to get into the subject of robotic GYN surgery, because I think we were talking offline about um, people like shiny new objects and gadgets and the hottest thing. Um, However, toys don't necessarily make the skill of a surgeon. So I'm interested in your opinion and what you think about and what you actually do in your center. That is a wonderful topic. To give credit where credit is due, uh, trying to be fair, robotics has improved the rate of minimally invasive surgery in our specialty. When I first started out, probably 30, 40% of hysterectomies were vaginal and the rest 70 plus percent were open abdominal surgeries. Even with the invention of laparoscopic surgical techniques, because of the learning curve in that type of surgery, there was, it, it only caught on to a certain extent. And only when robotics came along and allowed some surgeons who otherwise really just couldn't do laparoscopic or vaginal surgery to avoid open incisions, that started driving down the rate of open abdominal hysterectomies. That being said, my partners and I are just like a lot of surgeons. We're, I wouldn't say gadget freaks, but we 
try almost every single new instrument that comes on the market because we're always searching for something that's going to make our patient's experience better, less blood loss, less pain, faster surgery, as long as it's safe, mm -hmm. et cetera. And we took a long, hard look at the, at the robot because they approached us being fairly advanced, minimally invasive surgeons. Mm -hmm. they, they approached us and interestingly, the salesmen from, the, from Intuitive Surgical were surprisingly aggressive. They just about insinuated that if we didn't jump on board with the robotic uh, platform, that we're just going to lose all our patients. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, that's not been the case at all. But it's it's a concept of we looked at it and we scratched our heads and looked at every single different type of surgical procedure that we do and tried to figure out if there was a procedure that the robot would enable us to do that we weren't already able to accomplish mm -hmm. with regular laparoscopic instruments and we couldn't find one. And it's really just a different tool for achieving the same goal, which is a surgical procedure without a large incision. And, and a great outcome. And a great outcome. And and there's not a, a major difference in how patients do recovery-wise in the long term with between robotics and regular laparoscopic surgery, but there is a big difference in expense. You know, cases cost more because the robotic instruments are more costly. There's more time under anesthesia because you have to prepare the robot and dock it to the instruments. About how much more time? It, seems uh, like it depends on the surgeon. Okay. You, you got some surgeons who claim that because they do so many robotic procedures and their team is so used to getting the robot up and running that they can do it within 15 to 20 minutes. But the real truth is that for most robotic people, you're looking at close to half an hour or 40 minutes of, you know, on Extra. the front end and the back end, docking the robot, putting the trocars in and then undocking it at the end. That's extra time under, under anesthesia. anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Just because you're healthy and, and you can tolerate it doesn't mean you should do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, so there's expense. There's more trocar holes in the abdomen, larger trocar holes in the abdomen. And it's like driving from here across town. If you can get there in the same amount of time in a, uh, we were saying mm -hmm. earlier, in a, in a Ford Focus or a Volkswagen Beetle, but you can do it in a fancier way in a big Maserati should you just because you can mm -hmm. when it costs a bunch of money and society's talking about mm -hmm. cost of healthcare. Mm -hmm. So what what does the research show about the outcomes in the difference between robotic laparoscopy and non? That's a great question. The robot was FDA approved for use in hysterectomy in 2005. And there has actually been no shortage of publications looking at surgical outcomes. In other words, complication rates, whether the goal of the surgery was achieved, post-operative pain, recovery time, return to normal activities, et cetera. All that has been looked at extensively. There has yet to be any published studies that could prove any advantage of robotic minimally invasive surgery over traditional laparoscopic minimally invasive surgery. There's lots and lots of uh, data that shows that robotics obviously is hands down better than an open surgery, but when you compare minimally invasive technique against another minimally invasive technique, just one that, using a robot and one not, that one not. There's yeah. there's just not been any uh, any studies at all, and, I, and we monitor this mm -hmm. literature very carefully. Mm -hmm. So patients do your homework. That's part of the moral of the story. There, right? Do your homework. Well, we're going to switch it up. You certainly have been a market leader, and I think I. I would speak from a woman's perspective. We would rather have surgery with the experts that that's all they do all day in their environment than somebody that does it infrequently. Um, 
So, pra- yeah. Practice makes perfect Having for makes sure. Perfect skill, certainly. Yeah, skill isn't replaced by tools. That's for sure. Let's switch it up. You are an OBGYN practitioner, so let's talk a little bit on some unique things that you brought to your practice on the obstetric side. So, I think in Cartersville, had you had an MFM in Cartersville before maternal fetal medicine specialists at the hospital? I- you're saying before the other yeah. group? No, the, 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 this group out of uh, Tennessee was the first one to try to put a telemedicine uh, unit down there. Uh, but they did it at the hospital, and it was you know very inconvenient for the patients. We were the first group to, through our relationship with Women's Telehealth yeah. and Ann Patterson, I've known Dr. Patterson for, well, I don't even want to say how many years, yeah. but... Before, while I was in residency, right. yeah, exactly, uh-huh. she yeah. was in a maternal fetal medicine fellowship while I was right. in my residency. So we've, I've known of her for a long time and she, of her skills. And when I learned that she was at the forefront of women's telehealth, knowing how much trouble a lot of the patients had trying to get to a, a maternal fetal specialist, it, it is to to maybe us and some of our listeners, they might not think that much about traveling to Atlanta, but for a lot of our patients, mm-hmm. these rural patients, patients on Medicaid, patients with less means, driving to Atlanta is scary huge. for them and huge. huge. And the parking and the getting lost and the traffic. Take a day off work. Oh my yeah. God. So yeah. to, to get that kind of expertise in our own office where you can see the doctor and all the facial cues and social cues right there on the screen, it's yeah. very reassuring for the patients. Yeah. So you're kind of ahead of your time. One of the trends in telemedicine is that um, the technology is moving directly into physician practice practices. So from your obstetric point of view, your patient can have their OB checkup with you. And then if they're diabetic or have some advanced problem that would require referral, they what happens? They move down the hall. They, they, they Right in our own office, we have a, a setup where I think it's at least one or now we're starting to get enough to where we have more than one day per week where uh-huh. we have telemedicine consultations. And we have a very nice uh, telemedicine screen and a and a what do you call it a cart that's uh-huh. got everything and it's it's like being in the room with Dr. Patterson. Uh-huh. So if you were going to make an outside referral, like um, I'm trying to think of most common patients. So we mentioned diabetics, oh, hypertensive patients, growth restriction, uh, chronic hypertension, thyroid disease, diabetes. There's all kinds of things that, that we it would deal be with indications pre- for Absolutely. those patients. What has your patient response been to this new technology in your office? Thus far, it's nothing but, but raves. They, uh-huh. they, they love seeing and talking to the doctor right there in our own office. And, uh, and, you know, obviously the care that they get is, is, is mm-hmm. just unmatched. And how do you guys coordinate? Cause you still maintain management of the patient. So they're still going to mm-hmm. stay in their community deliver with you. Um, How do you and Dr. Patterson communicate back and forth or with your teams? Well, Dr. Patterson, of course, has all the physician's uh, cell phone numbers. Uh And anytime she has any question or or a special management uh, uh, directive for us about timing of delivery or any special care or treatment that has to be given to the patient, I mean, she instantly has access to us and Mm -hmm we can carry out whatever her recommendations are right then and there. Yeah, so you had to put telemedicine equipment in, but also I'm sure part of the care is taking a picture of the baby. So in your office, do you have like high-resolution high ultrasound? Or Yes, we have all the latest ultrasound machines to do 3D and 4D. And um, 
that's also also available for the patient. So only in very unusual situations that require a particularly early delivery would the patients ever have to go out of town for the actual delivery. Okay. But let's talk about uh, telemedicine isn't for everybody. So certainly there's pregnant patients that you do have to refer out. What would some of those indications be that are not appropriate for telemedicine? Probably the the certain patients who we know in advance have a very, very high chance of needing to be delivered at 34 weeks or less. Mm-hmm. In those cases, we usually end up using maternal fetal folks who, who will are also be hospital. caring for the patients in right. the hospital and during right. that delivery. Right. Okay, very good. So certainly the majority, it sounds like, have the benefit of staying in your practice, having it be convenient, um, having the latest technology right there. Um, it's a two-way conversation with the doctor. So does it work so that the patient um, goes to the appointment, they have their ultrasounds taken, and then it's transmitted to Dr. Patterson, and then the she looks at the images and sees the patient at the same time? It's almost like uh, what has pretty much transformed radiology across the country. There are lots of radiologists who, especially uh, during after hours, they they practice in their pajamas. They're at home with a high resolution screen and, you know, Looking having snacks images. and doing whatever. And they can review the images live with high speed internet connections. Dr. Patterson has immediate access to all the very high resolution ultrasound images and she can discuss and even show the patients what, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I think I predict that more and more, not just for your specialty, but for a lot of other specialties, um, once you, as the technology prices come down and it becomes more consumer friendly and people are used to it, probably it will spread a little bit more, but certainly it's enabled you to add a service line right into your practice. So your patients don't have to travel, whether they want a midwife or an OBGYN or they need high risk care, they're not traveling outside of your space. Right. For the most part. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Were you scared of trying telemedicine at the beginning? That's kind of a new thing. No, I've I've been watching that uh, in other specialties like I mean, heck, there's apps that you can get on your phone to to pop up a doctor somewhere and, and get a family practice consultation. I knew that it'd be only a matter of time before it came into OBGYN. Maternal fetal medicine, I think, is particularly well-suited for telemedicine because they don't really have to do a lot of procedures to the patients. It's mainly ultrasounds and, and reviewing their medical history and having a face-to-face consultation and mm-hmm. making their recommendations. So that that's perfectly suited for telemedicine. Yeah, so very good for you. All right, let's go on a little bit. In the news, we talked at the beginning of the show about uh, we're reading almost every day somewhere in your specialty the Zika virus, and it's on social media, it's on the news. People are concerned about the virus contracting the virus and then the results on pregnancy and kind of what our risk is as we've watched it kind of migrate from outside the U.S. to inside the U.S. Uh, right now we're seeing Puerto Rico and Florida in the news a lot and we're a contiguous state. So tell us a little bit about, I'm sure you're getting calls from your office about exposure or questions or screening or just kind of fill us in on what you're seeing. We are getting, uh, obviously, especially in summertime when it's mosquito season, uh, lots of patients are asking, is there something I need to do? Are there any cases in Georgia? Fortunately, thus far, there have not been any documented cases of mosquitoes actually transmitting it to any patients in Georgia. And in fact, in the even in Florida, I think the majority of the cases, if not all of them, have been folks who traveled because there's all kinds of patients who are traveling from South and Central America and the Caribbean mm-hmm. and in Miami. And so 
we give them the best available advice, which is prevention as much as possible. They're, the web, the CDC has a huge amount of resources. The American College of OBGYN has almost any medically oriented website that has anything to do with women has Zika resources. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you go to cdc.com slash Zika, you'll see everything you'll need to know about Zika prevention, mosquito bite prevention, what kind of things you can use on your clothing and on your skin, things that are safe for you and the baby. Yeah, the the scary thing about it is nobody knows thus far how how it's transmitted, how it gets through the placenta. They're doing research, but the, you know, they're still far from that. I think they're trying to work on a vaccine, but again, it's it's a it's just prevention because there's really no treatment right yeah. now. Have you changed any of your screening procedures? Like, do you ask patients if they're traveling or pay attention or during their antepartum visits? We do. We ask all the patients about travel, especially to those endemic areas mm-hmm. in the in the warmer climates. And obviously, we, we're very uh, attentive on ultrasounds for growth restriction. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's routinely screened for on mm-hmm. all ultrasounds is is fetal to growth. catch that anyway exactly yeah, yeah. okay mm-hmm. very good so a good reference to everybody out there cdc.com slash zika might be a good reference that, dot, dot gov dot gov <laughs> oh sorry that uh dr revo has shared with us today well we have gone over a lot of things in your practice that you that kind of make you cutting edge having your own surgery center isn't common mfm telemedicine isn't common you're doing some really unique things out there one of the things that I don't think I would have ever envisioned, but the combination of technology and economics has, has made this happen. A while ago, I read about people doing what they call uh, medical tourism. And what this typically consisted of, uh, up until not very long ago, was hospitals in certain places like Singapore and other places were investing in technology and pushing themselves on on social media. And there are lots of patients from Europe and other places, Canada and other places that would literally fly to other countries to get surgical procedures because of how much money they'd save. Mm -hmm. And they had some confidence that they were getting pretty decent surgical care. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we looked at this, especially after we got our surgery center, and I ended up meeting some folks who are very much on the forefront of this and people who are involved with companies that help provide more cost-effective options, but yet maintain a super high quality of of surgical standards to self-insured businesses. And there are a lot of uh, businesses in the United States that pay for their own healthcare. In fact, I think all the Fortune 500 and the Fortune 100, they all, anybody who has the means, (laughs) they pay for their own healthcare and have reinsurance for any catastrophic Mm -hmm. stuff. And, we ended up becoming only the second site for an ambulatory surgery center providing these very uh, advanced, minimally invasive GYN surgical options for people in this uh, surgical benefits network. And this has really taken off. I, I never would have thought this, but just since last year, we probably operated on probably 20, 25 people who have literally flown from out of state to have our procedures here. And at first, most people think, well, that's completely nuts. You got your own gynecologist that you've known for whatever, a long time. They deliver your baby. They do your pap smears. You know them. You're comfortable with them. Why would you ever go to another doc? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's money, and it's it's pretty compelling. These patients are 
they're given two options. They say, you can have your hysterectomy with your local doctor, and you'll go to your local hospital right there, we, probably where you had your baby, and you're going to pay this X number of thousand dollar deductible, and then you're going to pay- Like five 20, or $10,000. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. Like Javier, high right, a huge deductible, and a 20% copay up to a certain maximum, et cetera. Or you can consider going to Dr. Rebo and Dr. Barfield's surgery center in Atlanta, Georgia. We will, A, waive your copay, waive your deductible, pay for you and a companion to fly to Atlanta, put you up in a hotel, pay your meals. They give them a cash incentive for using this option. And so now patients are like, oh my God. And so they start, they research us, they talk to us on the phone. They're like, oh, these guys seem to know what they're doing. We show them our outcomes, which are uniformly excellent. Next thing you know, they're, they're on a plane and on the surgical, surgical schedule. And it, they have done extremely well. And it's, it's, I, I think, uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. That's a in, very interesting topic. So let's go a little further in that. So are these mostly domestic or international patients? Domestic? These, these are domestic. domestic I've got, um, I've even made up a little little Google map with all the pushpins of all the places mm-hmm. people have come from. I've had people from uh, Canada, but in the United States, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and even uh more than a day's drive for, or a day's drive from Georgia, from South Georgia, from, uh, I've had people from Maryland. It's amazing. I've had a couple of patients from the U.S. Virgin Islands mm-hmm. who've come in mm-hmm. and, and they, uh, it's, I, I keep shaking my head thinking, yeah. I, I just can't believe this. Actually, but. CW, you and I, this, our last guest doctor was Dr. Dorothy Mitchell-Leaf and she, she described the same thing about people traveling quite a ways to be cared for by a specific person for a specific reason. So I think their medical travel um, to get the outcome and the people you want and the cash incentives that you want is becoming more common for sure. Well, if you provide the value and the outcomes, the word just gets out. The thing I find intriguing about that is, is your, this model obviously illuminates very effectively the, the, the opportunity to decrease cost somewhat arbitrarily over where we are today in, in our traditional model. If you're able to fly some somebody and a companion, pay their meals, and put still, them in a hotel. And still save money. And still pay for the procedure. A friend of mine uh, did a, their hip replacement this way in Las Vegas. It was like $25,000 cheaper absolutely. to go to a specific place in Las Vegas, get that surgery, stay there, recover there, and then come home. And they had a similar experience to what you're describing. These are the type of innovations that I think our, our healthcare space needs. Well, it's it's well, all, choice. It's it's all, if we're going to be the consumers and it's our money we're paying on the high deductible, then it just won't be who I, who I get referred to, but I have the option to investigate it myself mm-hmm. and make some choices. Yeah, and that comes back to one of the buzzwords now in, in the medical space, which is transparency. Right. It's slowly leaking out there, but this is an obnoxious political opinion, but a lot of the people in the nanny state think that government people and bureaucrats know better for the consumer than they do. And the market has shown over and over and over that if if you give people enough information, they end up making the right decision. Yeah. And if you get more transparency about surgical outcomes and costs, 
most patients will look and say, well, geez, this is kind of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So let's talk logistically. Do you, do you, does the patient come to you and have a consult and then have their surgery the next day? Do you look at medical records in advance? How does it work? Oh, I'll tell you exactly how it works. The medical director of our surgical specialty network takes a quick glance at the, at the chart and sees the diagnosis and the indication for the surgery. They forward me the medical record. I review the entire medical record. And I can see by their, you know, whether they have any comorbidities, hypertension, mm-hmm. whatever, whether they're a good candidate for the surgery center based on our extensive experience with these folks. And once they're approved for the surgery and the patient says, yeah, I want to do this travel option, they have a coordinator that uh, schedules a surgery date. And they usually fly in the day before in time to have a consultation, a complete full consultation with the surgeon. We talk to them for in the office. We examine them. We do an ultrasound. We review all the records, make sure that everything is as it should be. The very next day, they have their surgery. The day, the morning after that, we see them for a brief checkup. We've had some patients who actually booked a flight the evening, afternoon or evening of the day following the surgery. But that's kind of variable. It depends how far they're mm-hmm. traveling, et cetera. But our others will go the second morning after surgery. Mm-hmm. But they, they schedule them. Uh, they book them in a local hotel. They have their, their uh, some of them, uh, their husband rents a car and they drive from the Atlanta airport up here. Sometimes they have a car service, bring them. We have wonderful hotels all in Bartow County that mm-hmm. are, you know, Hilton Garden Inn yeah. and Fairfield Inn and Suites. They're very nice and they put them up and it's just a couple miles from our office. So pre, pre-case medical record review, then their pre-op appointment with you, right. surgery the next day, and then post-op depending on the type of surgery exactly. they do. Wow, and, that's great. Mm-hmm. You've got telemedicine equipment. You also could do pre-op appointments with using your same telemedicine equipment if you chose know. to, probably. I don't know. Could, could I ask Dr. Patterson that, and, and you guys and that if their equipment is... Uh, I think so. Because that's a wonderful suggestion. And, and Well, it just builds that, a relationship with the patient before you see them for consultation. There, there's, there's, as everybody who pays uh, any attention to social media, people will say things in an email or a text that they would never dream of saying face to face. And there's a lot of nuance and social cues that you, you just miss without a face to face, but that would be, we offered them that that would be another layer of service that. Well, I think one thing that's happening in telemedicine, and I had this discussion yesterday in our offices is that once you have a platform, you can use it for more and more and more and more applications. So since you have the equipment or you have a certain level on the patient end, you might need to, get them in front of a laptop or something. But since you have some of the equipment, there probably is a good potential to use it for your other areas. So well, that's a, check into that. I'll have to give you <laughs> complete and total credit Ta-da! for that, Tanya. Woo! All right. Okay. Well, believe it or not, we are to the end of our show. We've had a very interesting show today and a lot of brainstorming back and forth. I like to say that people will remember everything we talked about, but they won't. <laughs> people do remember, though, stories about patients. Um, and kind of stories, high impact stories. So with the surgery center, with telemedicine, do any come to mind as particular standouts that really helped a patient that couldn't get there or uh, were skeptical about the center, but had just a terrific experience? Okay. Um, Let me think. I was just kind of thinking that on the way over. Um, I'll, I guess an example of stuff that's possible as it turns out, a college friend of mine lived in out of state in Maryland. His wife ends ends up going to the gynecologist says, Oh, you've got these big fibroids and 
we're going to have to do hysterectomy. And she's like, okay. And they said, well, how are you going to do it? I said, well, because of the size of your fibroids, we're going to have to make a, this, this big incision on your tummy, but don't worry, you'll, you'll recover. Okay. Eventually. Well, my friend, uh, whose wife this was, knew that I do minimally invasive surgery. So he's, hey Hugo, do you, what do you think of this? Can you can you review her ultrasound and see is this something you could do in a minimally invasive way? So I reviewed her record, and said, yeah, yeah, we do this routinely. Mm-hmm. So long story short, they came down from Maryland, stayed with us, had her surgery. This is a uterus that was what, as we say in the trade, a sixteen week size uterus, which is the size of a four month pregnancy. In other words, halfway from your pubic area up to the belly button, mm-hmm. not, not a small uterus, did it in, in our surgery center. Uh, my friend and his wife there, well, she's into quilting. Mm-hmm. So she had researched before she even came on the trip that there was some special store in Marietta that had special fancy threads mm-hmm. for quilting, insisted on driving down there with her husband to, to check the store out post-op day number one. And then they're also into getting those little stamps you get for visiting a national park. So they'd research and said, oh, well, Kennesaw Mountain is yeah, a national park. Yeah. The Battlefield National Park. We want to get our little stamp on there. Post-op day number two, so we did it on Thursday. On Saturday morning, they insisted on going to the park. My wife and I went with them. She hiked with us up the Cheatham Hill Trail all the way up to the top for the view. And I'm like, are you sure? No, I feel fine. So that's the kind of thing that's possible. Pretty amazing. Well, stay outpatient <laughs> when you can. I think you also brought up another trend. We talked about medical tourism, combining medical and leisure. Uh, As part of the medical tourism, you look at like a lot of people, like people going to Mexico. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. Anyways, what a fascinating show. Thanks for being a guest. We do not want to leave our our listeners without knowing how to reach you in your practice. So why don't we give them the phone number and the website of both the surgery center and your practice? Well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, The number they need to call, as they say on the commercials, is 770-386-4824. And that is to the Cartersville OBGYN office. Anybody who would be a candidate for surgery would have their assessment and their consultation done there. Uh, The website for our practice is www.cartersvilleobgyn.com. And our surgery center website is www.ga-advancedsurgerycenter.com. And the Number for the surgery center, in case you want to talk to our wonderful nurses there, are 678-605-9399. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. CW, that was a good one. Yeah, I would say if you <laughs> want more information about women's telehealth, go to womenstelehealth.com. You can find out how they can help OB practices and hospitals be able to provide the high-risk maternal fetal medicine specialist access that would help keep their patients where they are in their home office and the home facility in many cases being able to help patients do that so we want you to make sure you check them out if you've not done so already go to the upper left hand corner of the top docs radio show page you'll see the apple logo there that'll take you to the itunes store where the show podcast lives and subscribe to us when the new episode comes out it'll be downloaded straight to your device and ready for you to listen to when it's convenient and we hope you turn around and share this information clearly Dr. Rebo was sharing some really great information for uh, ladies that you know in your life. So if you turn around and share this with your social media networks, you might just be putting information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that really makes a big difference for them. And we'll say thanks to all the people that do that. Tanya and Dr. Rebo is great. Awesome show today. Very good. Thank all you right. so much. Thanks for so much, CW. Well, yeah. we look forward to having you back here in a couple of weeks. We'll talk to you then. 